0: I'm Azine Gureshi. This is Suspicious Activity Inside the FinCEN Files. Episode two, Permission Slip. Okay, so last episode we spent a bunch of time kind of summarizing what this story is. We talked a lot about the documents this reporting is based on, the thousands of suspicious activity reports that BuzzFeed News has gotten access to. But this time, let's talk specifics about one bank, HSBC. We've got BuzzFeed News reporters Anthony Cormier and Jason Leopold back with us to tell us this story that involves money laundering and pyramid schemes and strippers. And let's just get into it. Here's Anthony.
1: HSBC became notorious for permitting a network of narco-traffickers, terror groups, and sanctioned countries, corrupt states, uh, to launder money. Uh, More than a billion dollars, according to one count.
0: In 2012, after a lengthy federal investigation, the government told HSBC, you have to knock this off. We
2: are here today to announce the filing of criminal charges against HSBC Bank. The government says the bank did business with known drug lords, Iran, even banks associated with Al-Qaeda was charged with violating sanctions laws by conducting business with customers in Iran, Sudan, and Cuba.
0: When the most ruthless of the Mexican drug cartels wanted to hide their money, they went to HSBC.
2: They failed to comply with the legal requirements incumbent on all U.S. financial institutions to guard against being used for money laundering.
0: HSBC was the poster child of a bad bank. The bank was slapped with a big fine, $1.9 billion, And an independent monitor was installed to make sure HSBC wasn't engaging in criminal activity and was addressing internal problems that allowed for it in the past. But even at the time, there was criticism that the federal government was going easy on HSBC. It is a case that has everything, everything except an arrest. This is a a signal to other banks that if you do this kind of stuff, you'll get a parking ticket,
1: you'll pay the fine, and you'll move on. Now the bank has to demonstrate to a federal monitor that they're in compliance with all laws for five years.
0: That whole backstory, HSBC's egregious violations and then the U.S. government's response, was well known. Our story starts after that, when Anthony and Jason and other reporters at BuzzFeed News start digging through this pile of secret documents. And what starts to become clear to them is that HSBC was banking some of the same kinds of customers that had gotten them into trouble in the first place.
1: You know, when we began to look at it, we discovered that it was still struggling to capture all of the money laundering going through its accounts. It was failing to stop or or leave clients who were accused of, you know, misconduct.
0: The promise that HSBC made to clean up its act, it came under something called a Deferred Prosecution Agreement. It's a tool that's used a lot when banks are caught engaging in suspicious activity. And it's what it sounds like. The Justice Department told HSBC we'll defer the prosecution to see if you keep your nose clean. If you do, no one goes to jail. The bank can go about its business.
1: This is, on paper, uh, a way for, you know, a bad actor or a bad corporate a- entity to change its ways, to institute new policies, to hire new staffers, you know, to, to exit clients.
0: That whole process of getting right starts with the installation of an independent monitor.
1: An outside entity is going to come in and essentially act as a a probation officer, a parole officer. This person's going to report back to the government on your progress. It's going to tell the government what it sees on a day-to-day basis. It's going to sort of exhume all of the skeletons inside the bank and hopefully get rid of them, right?
0: In this case, the team that's monitoring HSBC is led by a guy named Michael Tchaikovsky.
1: They're really respected A former prosecutor, a guy who had had gone after the mob, gone after terrorists, he'd in fact made LAPD reform, It made the Teamsters reform as a monitor.
0: So Tchaikovsky and his team start looking under the hood at HSBC, and they find all sorts of things that need to change. One big thing is HSBC's electronic monitoring system is a mess. And as a result, a lot of shady transactions could potentially keep going through undetected. The monitors say that needs to change, and HSBC forms a group called the Financial Crime Compliance Team.
1: So the Financial Crime Compliance Team is a group of uh, consultants and staffers that are brought in to essentially do the work that the monitor was spotting, right? To make the fixes, to improve the way that their computer systems worked, to make sure that they were capturing all of the suspicious transactions. Essentially, these were the, the folks on the on the ground who were making the bank better. And things there seemed to devolve rather quickly.
0: Anthony and Jason's investigation led them to a whistleblower within the financial crime compliance team, who alleged that the culture of the team was not exactly professional.
1: They are using cocaine, They are getting drunk every night. They are regulars at a local strip club called Majingo's. This person reports to HR and to legal that the members of this team are so hungover the next day that they're falling asleep on the phone, that they're crashed out in bathrooms and that they are not meeting the demands of the monitor. In fact, at one point, this person writes that the most recent monitor's report should set hairs running on fire because it's very clear that this financial crime compliance team is not going to get the job done.
0: Basically, this source was telling people inside HSBC, I think this team is too messed up and unfocused to get this job done. There's more emphasis on partying than on work. And the worry was, if they didn't solve this— then dirty money is going to continue to flow through the bank and HSBC would not be able to keep the promises it made in order to avoid prosecution. The whistleblower's complaints were colorful, though.
1: The partying culture at this office on this team was so profound that it was, in fact, named. There were Mad Mondays and there were Wacky Wednesdays. You know, supposed to fix the system. and What do they do? You know, they're partying with strippers. I mean, <laughs> so. one of the emails is like, It's so crazy. This person writes to uh, HSBC's HR and legal department and says, look, if you just go down to the strip club, the women at Majingo's will know us by name. Just go down there, I'm telling you. Many of the employees at HSBC that we've spoken with felt that the bank was paying lip service to the government that it was only going to do the, the minimum required of it to skate by.
0: Again, HSBC was under that deferred prosecution agreement for five years. At one point, two years into the process, the whistleblower who complained about the financial crimes compliance team wrote a memo to higher-ups at HSBC that said, quote, HSBC is no more safe or compliant than two years ago. There has been an appalling amount of time and money spent to achieve so little. So there's a really, really crazy example of what one of these financial schemes actually looked like in your story. Jason, tell me about filming Zoo.
3: This is just one of the great examples where we were able to take what was in the public record and marry it up to our documents. And so a year after HSBC enters into this deferred prosecution agreement, a little over a year, that is the Securities and Exchange Commission cracks down on this massive pyramid scheme. Uh, this pyramid scheme that was headed uh, by a guy named Phil Zhu, who lived in uh, Southern California. And uh, he had a company called uh, WCM and WCM777. Very, very religious individual. And uh, this this pyramid scheme basically was, you know, he, he was selling third-party cloud computing services, which would include web hosting and data storage. And he promised these investors, you know, 100% return within like 100 days. Um, his his presentations are still on YouTube. wsim uh, 777com is a social capital company. The company is to serve the people and glorify God. And uh,
0: can, can I ask what this company name means? What is the 777?
3: Yeah, 777 is, you know, God's number. It's the opposite of 666, the devil. I only know this from my heavy metal days, by the way. Um, so there was a band named Striper, who was a Christian heavy metal band, and they had 777. And I was like, what is 777? And it's, uh, yeah, it's the opposite of 666, God's number.
0: Wow, this is the best way to find out the answer to this question.
3: <laughs> yeah. Hi, um, brothers and sisters, we are very glad to be with you and uh, let's build a community of love and to transform the world and to prepare for this uh, coming ending time, the collapse of Babylon City, the collapse of a world economy.
1: Yeah. And he's let's up there, around. you know, in front of this crowd of mostly uh, Asian and Latino immigrants. And, you know, he's telling them, I got the vision, but I need your money.
3: And they gave him.
1: They gave him money. Lots and lots
3: of money, more than $80 million. And he used it to enrich himself.
0: Filming Zhu bought golf courses in Southern California, diamonds, houses that he claimed he was going to use as places of worship for his investors. Eventually, the whole scheme comes crashing down.
3: You know, the SEC came crack, you know, crack down on him, as well as California regulators and regulators around the world. Um, mm-hmm. And he, you know, he moved his money from l a to uh, HSBC in Hong Kong,
0: so filming Zhu was a client of HSBC, and while he's under investigation, he moves millions of dollars out of the u s and into accounts in Hong kong
3: and so we have these suspicious activity reports that shows that the bank suspected that he was running a Ponzi scheme, and this was happening while the monitor was in place. Wow, obviously HSBC is just a, a massive bank. Um, I'm not saying the monitor should have known everything that was taking place. But again, what we're able to report is they kept moving his money. They allowed him filming Zoo to drain, you know, his accounts of seven million dollars while regulators and officials from other governments, We're trying to
1: to get information from the bank. Yeah, I mean, the, the TikTok on this is pretty remarkable, right? So it's 2013. California regulators go to the bank, HSBC, and they say, we need some information about WCM 777. And the bank's legal department writes back and says, we're unable to locate any accounts with information stated in the subpoena. Four weeks later, though, four weeks HSBC files the first of three suspicious activity reports about the company and the owner.
0: This is a curious sequence of events that comes up in a lot of the suspicious activity reports BuzzFeed News has dug into. It appears, fairly often, that certain banks don't start filing SARS on suspicious transactions until some external investigation is underway. Then, suddenly, they start filing a bunch of them. In the case of filming Zhu the SARS started pouring out of HSBC's U.S. headquarters as the investigations into him and WorldCloud Media 777 were heating up.
1: So they're in their headquarters in, in Virginia, and they're describing the company in October 2013 as reportedly being involved in a quote-unquote Ponzi activity. And they note that there are 800 wire transfers for $6 million. Listen to this. Next month, Massachusetts regulators publicly announced that they intend to shut down WorldCloud Media in their state. January, California and Colorado do the same. You think HSBC stops moving their money? Absolutely not. The Hong Kong branch continues to do it. And they continue to tell the U.S. government about this activity through suspicious activity reports. So even after there's official action again and again and again, even after the bank's own internal investigators raise the specter of this company, Hong Kong continues to move the money and the bankers just continue to file SARs.
0: So SARs, which are supposed to empower the banks to help fight money laundering and terror financing, can end up functioning as something more like a permission slip to bank the bad guys.
3: There's no obligation, you know, that the bank has to shut down the accounts. They simply file this, you know, suspicious activity report and just continue moving money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's re- it's like a defensive filing. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. at least how it's referred to within the industry, right, Anthony?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, just to be clear, banks file SARS for all sorts of reasons. But if you look at certain instances, when they started filing individual SARS, what the timing was, as it related to outside investigations, what the bank continued to do after they filed, it's hard not to suspect that the filing is a kind of inoculation. They're just alerting the government to it so they don't get in trouble. It's as though they're saying, look, I'm doing this. I'm following the rules. Now it's all on you to look into it. We're not. And from the government's side, again, this is just my interpretation from looking at specific instances, there seems to be a kind of complicity, like an unspoken agreement. As long as you go through the motions, we're not going to come down too hard on you.
0: As criminals using the global banking system to launder money go, filming Zhu is fairly tame. But his example is a pretty clean one of how this dance between the banks and the government agencies overseeing them might work. According to a report filed by Michael Cherkasky's team at the end of their five-year monitoring period, HSBC continued to bank seriously bad actors and organizations throughout their deferred prosecution agreement. There was a money laundering operation. They moved at least $900 million through HSBC Hong Kong from Russia to the West.
1: They were banking a powerful Panamanian family who the bank thought was transacting with suspected criminals. We see an individual who's suspected of operating a money laundering organization for for paramilitary operations and other drug traffickers in Latin America. Again and again in these documents, we're seeing individuals and entities who later pop up on the radars being involved in some pretty gross financial schemes.
0: So where is everything now? I mean, what is happening today with HSBC?
1: So uh, let's, I mean, we will wrap up the end of their term, right? They've got a five-year, you know, agreement. Basically in late 2017, you know, there's a kind of a big decision. Justice Department has to decide whether to like, you know, act on any of the things the monitors found or to let HSBC sort of go and end the agreement. And the monitors team um, gathers together in their headquarters overlooking Bryant Park.
0: Bryant Park is a big public square in midtown Manhattan.
1: And many of the team members are frustrated. And they're sort of talking internally about the many things that they've found and how they don't really feel like HSBC has made the right type of progress. They're seeing these suspicious clients. They're seeing, the reporting potential terror financing. But late in the game, December 2017, like a lightning bolt, Justice Department announces... HSBC is getting off. The Deferred Prosecution Agreement is over. And as you can imagine, inside HSBC, there's quite a bit of celebration. Uh, Lots of people are like, you know, this is way way to go, public announcements. And look, to to their credit, you know, HSBC did make some progress and they tout that progress. But what we know is that, um, what is it, Jason, a month? After the end of the Deferred Prosecution
3: Agreement in this case? January 2018, they entered into another Deferred Prosecution Agreement for a different kind of financial crime. But yeah, another Deferred Prosecution Agreement then. And then uh, sometime later, another Deferred Prosecution Agreement. So, you know, the idea that Deferred Prosecution Agreements would be a deterrent, you know, I think that we see how it... It's not worked that way.
0: HSBC isn't alone. Since 2010, at least 17 other banks have been similarly punished for violating anti-money laundering and sanctions laws. But there's no evidence to show that the punishment resulted in meaningful change. Executives didn't go to jail. Banks weren't shut down.
1: The Justice Department says, we're going to force them to clean up their acts. We're going to force them to behave. But when we examined it, we found that that's simply not true. And what we discovered is that this this act, this tool, there is nothing in there with actual bite because the Justice Department is unwilling to move against individual entities.
0: And sorry, I realize this is a very basic question, but why not?
1: It, you get different reasons when
3: you talk to different people. I mean, you know, Eric Holder, the former attorney general, testified that perhaps these banks are, are are too big to fail. Uh, when we took a look behind the scenes, you know, to see what was taking place as the government was working on this deferred prosecution agreement, what we saw was an intense lobbying campaign uh, by the UK, uh, UK government officials, uh, and others that felt that if any executives were jailed or if the US government... Was too heavy-handed with you know in, in prosecuting hsbc that it would it would amount to a global economic disaster
0: in a letter to then fed chairman ben bernanke and treasury secretary tim geithner george osborne the former chancellor of the exchequer in the uk that's the equivalent of the u.s treasury secretary he wrote in part it is not my intention to interfere with criminal or regulation action and procedures in the u.s he continued however i I would appreciate your assistance in ensuring that enforcement action does not have unintended consequences. Osborne acknowledged that criminal convictions might mean that HSBC could no longer operate in the U.S. Quote Questions about HSBC's continued ability to clear U.S. dollars would risk destabilizing the bank globally, with very serious implications for financial and economic stability. There's one more piece of the puzzle. One more thing that would tell us more about what actually happened to HSBC. Michael Trukowski, the monitor who was installed to keep HSBC in line, wrote a nearly 1,000-page report that documents his entire investigation. But that report has been kept from the public. BuzzFeed News has filed a FOIA lawsuit to obtain the report. The Justice Department is fighting the suit in court and is trying to keep the report secret. HSBC weighed in on the lawsuit too, which is not something private companies ordinarily do. It doesn't want the report released either. In response to BuzzFeed News' reporting, a DOJ spokesperson says, the Department of Justice stands by its work and remains committed to aggressively investigating and prosecuting financial crime, including money laundering, wherever we find it. HSBC says they do not comment on suspicious activity reporting and gave BuzzFeed News a statement which reads in part, quote, Starting in 2012, HSBC embarked on a multi-year journey to overhaul its ability to combat financial crime across more than 60 jurisdictions. During that period, the Monitor fulfilled his role of identifying issues and making recommendations for improvement and concluded that HSBC became a safer bank each year as a result of the bank's efforts. The statement continues, at the end of 2017, the Justice Department, having received all of the Monitor's reports, determined that HSBC met all of its obligations under the DPA. HSBC is a much safer institution than it was in 2012, end quote. We've got a little bit more about how all this reporting came together right after a break. Okay, so HSBC is one story that emerged from the documents. We're gonna get to more. But first, I think it's worth explaining how BuzzFeed News took a pile of very hard to decipher government financial reports and came to believe that terrorists and drug cartels and criminals of all kinds were able to use the banking system to launder dirty money and finance illegal activities all over the world. It's an exciting story that plays out a little like Ocean's Eleven. If Ocean's Eleven was about a bunch of spreadsheet-making, number-crunching financial reporters. So I want to take you back to where we were at the end of episode one. Anthony and Jason, they have this pile of super-secret documents, the suspicious activity reports, from FinCEN. They've reported out some stories related to Donald Trump, his orbit, and their connections to Russia. But they suspect that there's another story beyond Trump contained in those documents. It's just very hard to figure out what it is. First, there are thousands of pages of documents. And those documents are covered with numbers, dollar amounts, but also maybe a phone number or an address connected to a client. But not always. Whatever story was in those documents, Jason and Anthony knew they needed to find a way to tell it. Enter John Templon, one of BuzzFeed News' data guys.
4: The, I mean, the first thing that I was thinking is, like, just how do I standardize this?
0: John's the kind of reporter who looks at a challenge like this and calls it a really interesting data problem.
4: It was clear, just from looking at the material, that, like, there was so much there. And trying to figure out, like, how do we standardize this and find the really interesting stuff in it was a really interesting data problem.
1: I think John began to look at the scope of it and said, oh, f- Screw my goodness, we're done. Like what are we gonna do here? And the the issue is not the raw number, it's the complexity therein. So these are not, you know, a million pages of emails. This is these are very nuanced, complicated documents.
0: And dense. They are. SARS are hard to read, and they're only a piece of the story. A SAR will tell you what info the bank has on the customer maybe their phone number or their address, what branch of the bank the suspicious activity occurred at.
4: And then a few pages in, there is a narrative. And, and that is the bank literally describing why it is flagging this. And if you're lucky, it is saying exactly transaction by transaction what happened and the particular reasons that they think things are suspicious.
0: Sometimes that's as simple as a transaction that seems like it doesn't quite add up. John pulled out his laptop while we were talking to help explain.
4: For instance, um, I'm looking at an example where there's $27 million in transactions and they all say that they're for one invoice around fluorescent lamps.
0: $27 million? (laughs) Yes,
4: I don't know why anyone needs $27 million for one contract for fluorescent lamps.
0: So John took all that information in these documents and started to systematize it. What bank names keep popping up? Who are the people the banks are filing SARs on? With that information, he built the first searchable database of the SARS.
4: And I feel like that blew people's mind at the time because they were like, oh, we've just been like opening one of these PDFs and like searching and hoping we'd find the person we were looking for. And I was like, that's not... That's not going to crack this. (laughs) it's going to take you forever to do it that way.
0: Around this time is where I entered the picture. They needed some extra boots on the ground to help them link up the documents to people out in the real world. Anthony threw me on a story about a shady loan a bank had given to a Russian businessman who was linked to a vast money laundering conspiracy in Russia. He was suspected of cleaning this money the tried and true way, funneling it into expensive Manhattan real estate. I ended up chasing sources all around the city. Late one night in Staten Island, I knocked on the door of a former bank loan manager and confronted him about why he approved the loan. A lawyer called 911 on me after I showed up at her office in Cheapside Bay, and I tried, but mostly failed, to convince about a dozen security guards in ritzy high-rises to let me talk to their wealthy residents. That story was exciting, but after I finished, Anthony and Jason wanted to go bigger. How many stories like that one were in our thousands of pages of SARS? And taken together, what did it all say? Which is why we needed our colleague, reporter Tom Warren.
4: The first time I saw the documents, you know, I I, I was in New York, and, um, you know, like in Indiana Jones where they open up the Ark and you're just like, here it comes, do you know what I mean? Like, you you know, like, the top of your head's going to be blown off.
0: (laughs) Tom knows banking. And unlike most people, it gets him really excited. The first time he came to New York to work on this, he was like the guy in A Beautiful Mind. He was scrawling flowcharts on a whiteboard wall, mapping all these connections, writing so much that he had to stand on a chair to scribble some more names higher up close to the ceiling because he ran out of room. I've often heard his enthusiasm described as infectious.
1: That was a real inflection point for us. Is
0: he crazy or is he... He saw things I definitely didn't see. He saw the
1: forest. Yeah. Right? We were looking at a bunch of trees and in comes someone from 30,000 feet and goes, oh boy, yeah, that looks interesting.
0: Also, someone who loves forests. Helps. (laughs) Yeah. It helps. In order to find his way through the forest, Tom did exactly what a character like him would do in a movie. He sat down at a computer, put on headphones and got to work.
4: Yeah, yeah, put on some like drum and bass, very loud, (laughs) as fast as possible, and just go through the material page after page.
0: I mean, drum and bass is very fast. I can't imagine like listening to that for more than like 10 minutes and reading these things.
4: Yeah, I find it a bit soothing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But even with Tom on the team and John's database, The information in these SARS is immense and varied. It covered more than $2 trillion in transactions, reported by almost 90 financial institutions, all pinging around every corner of the globe. We needed more help. And then John was at a conference, and he ran into someone from ICIJ, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. ICIJ is the famous news organization made up of hundreds of journalists around the world who've broken major stories, most notably the Panama Papers, which revealed the ways in which the global elite hide their money in tax havens like Panama. So John has this interesting data problem, and he's talking to someone from ICIJ who is really good at dealing with interesting data problems. And in the moment it occurs to him, maybe they can help maybe BuzzFeed and ICIJ could collaborate on this gigantic reporting project. And so I was like, can we get coffee? But the thing is, journalists are inherently competitive people. We're always trying to beat one another to the punch. Until the minute we release them into the world, we tend to guard our stories with our lives. You want to protect your scoop, protect your sources, everything. So opening up to other newsrooms, especially other newsrooms we don't even know, kind of goes against our strongest instincts. On the other hand, ICIJ had pulled it off before. They invented this kind of literally global news collaboration, and they'd shown, most famously with the Panama Papers, that it can actually work. If BuzzFeed was willing to share the thousands of SARS they had with ICIJ's 400-plus reporters around the world, they could tackle this story in a way they'd never be able to do on their own. At that coffee, John didn't say much. He certainly didn't say that BuzzFeed News had SARS.
4: I didn't say anything about, like, the specifics, but I said, I have this large data, international data set that I'm trying to figure out what to do with it that's a whole bunch of documents.
0: He got a sense that ICIJ was interested. And so he came back and talked with his editors, including Ariel Kaminer.
2: I think that we all saw that this was really a way to do that on a transformative scale, not just more than we could do on our own, but, you know, powers of 10. Mm -hmm. So we decided to go for it. And then they said the next step is we should get everybody together in one place.
0: But how do you get over 400 reporters from around the world into a room without calling attention to it?
2: And they said there's a very big international investigative reporting conference in Hamburg in September. You know, everybody will have traveled from around the world to get to that. It was the perfect
0: cover. They'd all just make their return flights for a few days after the conference ended, and that's when we'd meet. So a bunch of us from BuzzFeed, including me, flew out to Hamburg to attend this clandestine conference after another conference. Even the meeting location provided cover. It all took place inside the Hamburg temple, an old synagogue which had been shut down by the Nazis and is now owned by a German TV station. Just for extra dramatic effect, the first meeting took place on Rosh Hashanah.
2: There are people here from Korea and India and out, you know, Burkina Faso and Brazil and
0: Venezuela, and it's a big deal. And then when the event actually kicked off, you guys were, like, sitting down at this on this stage level, and then all the reporters were up in these, like, bleacher seats. Do you remember, like, looking up and seeing everyone and—
1: I do. I remember thinking, how are we going to make all of these people happy? (laughs) Because these are all journalists and, like, they're all going to kvetch about something. Here are all these really great reporters. We're going to try to satisfy everyone? How's that going to work?
0: Because these people all came to journalism from crazily different circumstances. Some people had all the protections of a free press. Other people were out there risking their lives every day to tell the truth about dictators and police states. But they were still at it. Ariel and Anthony got up to give speeches. When it was Jason's turn, something unexpected happened.
3: I looked out. I knew I had to to discuss this, and I wanted to discuss it, and I was going to give a little bit of a backstory uh, about these records. But I looked into the audience, and I, (laughs) just to kind of share my paranoia, you know, there was a moment where I wondered if there was, like, an undercover FBI agent, you know, in the audience listening to figure out, you know, what our plans were, what we were doing. Um, so I scrapped what I was gonna say <laughs> and I went oh, well, up.
0: I didn't even know that.
3: And yeah, yeah, I, I was really worried. And so, you know, I was trying to play it cool. Like, yeah, hey, this is great. Great to be here, folks. Um but it was, you know, a bit paranoia inducing.
0: Now, with the ICIJ, BuzzFeed had an army of reporters who are going to be looking for things in the documents, too.
2: Like the folks who were there from India were able to say, oh, look at this name, which, you know, meant nothing to us. I didn't know the name. This person is India's number one most wanted criminal.
0: Anthony saw it, too, with the Venezuelan team of reporters.
1: I mean, they were able to very quickly tick off politicians, shell companies, uh, gold, ag entities like somebody flagged the one of the largest beef producers in the world and i was like i didn't even i had no idea that that was a company it's a very weird place to be in because normally we'd be locked in a room in in the newsroom with like blackout curtains and you couldn't come in and we're not going to share anything and in this case like we're choosing the opposite of that we're sharing
0: Next time on Suspicious Activity inside the FinCEN Files. This collaboration bears some fruit on Deutsche Bank. If you want to read the reporting this podcast is based on, it's available at the website fincenfiles.com. Suspicious Activity is a production of Pineapple Street Studios and BuzzFeed News, based on original reporting by Anthony Cormier, Jason Leopold, and the BuzzFeed News investigations team. It's hosted by me, Azeen Gureshi. Our producer is Janelle Pfeiffer. Our associate producer is Kim Baikema. Editing by Joel Lovell, Maddie Sprung-Kaiser, and Ariel Kaminer. Fact-checking by Ben Phelan and Scott Pham. Our senior producer is Jonathan Menhevar. The episode was mixed by Johnny Vince Evans, Michael Rayfield, and Rob Byers of Final Final V2. Music by the band Friggs from their album Basic Behavior. Additional music by Martin Fowler. Special thanks to Grace Chen, Fergus Scheel, Samantha Hennig, Alex Campbell, and Mark Schoofs. Jenna weiss and Max Flinsky are the executive producers of Pineapple Street.